from LPM. Louisville Public Media. Support for LPM Podcasts comes from the Eye Care Institute and Butchertown Clinical Trials, where they strive for diversity, equity, and inclusion within their staff, patients, and clinical trial participants. To learn more, visit butchertown.clinic. The understanding of archetypes in general has become the framework, really, of my work in the world, the way that I understand myself, the way that I work with women, the way that I work with girls. From Louisville Public Media, this is Five Things, this show that tells a life story through the objects we treasure. I'm Tara Anderson. My guest today is a writer and community leader who works mostly with women and girls in Louisville. She'll tell you more about her work herself, but what you should know right off the bat is that Amy Bamel Wilding is going against the tide of society. In a world where we don't usually talk about things like menstruation or menopause, she leads groups to help others with these transitions. And if you're a dude listening to this podcast, please don't tune out now. I promise that you can learn something from this conversation. I'm Amy Bamel Wilding. I'm the creator and facilitator of Red Tent Louisville. So I hold sacred space for women and girls in our community. Uh, I'm a sexuality educator as well as a rite of passage facilitator. So I kind of hold women throughout the lifespan from young girlhood to motherhood to crondom throughout the years. And we welcome and honor all the stages of women's lives. There's a lot to unpack in there already. There sure is. My goodness. So, t- so tell me a little bit about um, what you mean as far as rites of passage. Well, I honor and facilitate gatherings for girls and women of all different ages as they pass through what are called the blood mysteries. So menarche, which is when girls begin menstruating during puberty. Um, motherhood, when women transition from quote-unquote maidens to mothers. And crones are when we go through the process of menopause. So we honor these uh, blood mysteries as major life passages for women that are currently not observed or honored in any way in our culture. Well, I should say motherhood is um, something that we all recognize and celebrate. But we focus more on the spiritual and emotional transition rather than the transition of the, you know, physical birth necessarily mm-hmm. or, you know, the the actual event of having the child. Mm-hmm. We focus a lot on the transition that a woman goes through spiritually, emotionally, psychologically as she transitions from woman to mother, yeah. which is just such a major transition that is not really supported in any real fundamental way in our culture. Yeah. And the word crone interests me a lot because that usually has a very negative connotation, it right? Does, I think right. I think like dried out, <laughs> you know, uh, scary. Right. And we owe that perception to things like fairy tales and mm-hmm. mythology. Um, crone is actually a term of reverence, and it derives from the word crown. So when we are talking about a crone, we're talking about a wise woman who has reached a level of maturity and wisdom by living her life up through these years. And in many cultures in the past, particularly, women who were in their 
elder wise women years were the most respected of their community. And for example, in Native American cultures, women would have a walking staff that was there throughout their lifetime. And for each of their menstrual cycles, they would take a piece of their menstrual cloth and tie it to or or affix it to their walking staff. Hmm. So you can imagine by the time a woman was um, of the age of menopause, she would probably have hundreds of these strips of cloth on her walking staff. And in their culture, the more of these strips of cloth a woman had on her walking staff, the more honored and respected she was in her culture. And we have really, we've lost that sense of reverence. And as women age, they become more and more invisible. But in fact, it's their stories and their wisdom that we really need to connect to in order to understand our own journeys as girls and women, especially in our culture. So one of the things that I think is really important is the intergenerational wisdom sharing that I facilitate in Red Tent. But I also think it's really important to honor that passage and to show reverence for this milestone of life, of reaching this demarcation of wise woman. That's a lovely idea. Mm-hmm. Something to look forward to. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I ask you to pick out five things from your life that have been important or resonant in some way. And we're yeah. going to talk about them and learn more about you this way. Okay. Let's get started. Well, What's the, the first, thing? first is uh, probably the most obvious. It's The Red Tent, the novel by Anita Diamond. And You know, at this point, it's a major foundation of my life and the way that I share my medicine with my community and with the world. This book was published in, I'm going to say, 1997, which, interestingly, I was working at Barnes & Noble in Athens, Georgia, while I was in college. Mm -hmm. And I remember when the book came out. It wasn't really something that piqued my interest at that time, but I remember it coming out. I remember that vivid saturated red color on the cover Mm -hmm. of Dina in what looks like a toga, essentially a cloak. It's just such a visually rich and delicious image. But it wasn't until I was probably two to three years into motherhood that I read it myself. Mm. And it was such an awakening for me. It was a paradigm shift for me. So for somebody who doesn't know this book, can you describe it? Or? Yes, it's a it's a biblical tale. It's the t- it's the tale of Dina, who's the daughter of Rachel, the granddaughter of Sarah. And it takes place in the Bible. The the reference to Dina is very, you know, it's two lines mm-hmm. in the Bible. So Anita Diamond took creative license and uh, created the story around Dina and Rachel and Leah and basically wove this beautiful story of sisterhood and shared the intimate relationships between women of this time who, you know, during this biblical period were technically seen as property, essentially. Mm -hmm. And their role was, in essence, to support the propagation of men throughout the culture. So to focus the story in the way that she does on Dina and her relationship among her brothers, she was the only child born, the only daughter born in this family, and take us inside this sacred women's space. The red tent itself was the menstrual hut for these women. And so they joined together each month. They menstruated at the same time on the new moon, as many women did before all of our, you know, artificial light, mm-hmm. our complete disconnect from natural rhythms. 
And so they would join together for three days in the tent and share this sacred time where they talked about things that women talked about. They experienced things that women experienced. This is where all the babies of their community were born into women's mm-hmm. hands. Mm-hmm. So for me, it really struck a chord and awakened a hunger in me that I really couldn't even name. I think it's a hunger I always had, but essentially this shined the light mm. on my hunger for sacred community and sisterhood. And as a relatively new mom, I think that's one of the most important things that we can give ourselves or that we can cultivate or participate in is sisterhood that supports our journey as mothers. For me, it was uncharted territory because my mother was essentially absent most of my mm. life. So I wasn't mothered through uh, menarche. I wasn't mothered through pregnancy. I wasn't mothered through birth. And what I found was that by cultivating and participating in sisterhood, I received that nurturing that I really mm. needed. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something, again, that is really lacking in our modern culture. Yeah. And, and that, that was something I experienced too when I first became a mother it was like all of this stuff that went along with having a new baby. I thought I should have been watching my cousins and my aunts do this yes. stuff. And I didn't yes. really, I didn't really have that kind of, that kind of community. So when I had questions about diapers or questions about breastfeeding or questions about how much should the baby be sleeping, you go to your friends, Yes, but I felt like, was this so hard 500 years ago? (laughs) I have the same thoughts, and I frequently feel sadness that we are so disconnected from community. Mm -hmm. And for the reasons that you mentioned, we should be seeing, uh, you know, we should be seeing birth. We should be seeing breastfeeding. We should be seeing a baby wearing on a regular basis. And we're just not seeing those things. And I think it has not only a a very real toll on our experience as mothers, but it has a very deep, I think, spiritual toll as well. And when I think about how it's just so difficult, those first two to three years of mothering, even if you have the best partner in the whole world, Mm -hmm. it is more work than two people can do. (laughs) It's just impossible. And so we end up losing ourselves. And when I think about prior to, you know, maybe the 19th and 20th century model of family and community, we were all living together, (laughs) you know, for better or for worse. We were living with extended family. The huge benefit to that was there is more than one set of arms to hold a baby. There's somebody there to help you get through those long nights. There's someone there to help you when you're having difficulty breastfeeding. And if there's a continuum of well-being We are at the very farthest end away from what a community would look like to ensure the well-being of new mothers Mm -hmm. and their babies Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. new fathers. And I think looking toward a more integrated model of real community is absolutely the path to well-being. So when you had your first baby... What was your community like around you? Well, this would be a perfect way to segue into my second item. Um, My community, I was so lucky at the time. And (laughs) where were you living then? I was living in Yellow Springs, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And for those who do know, it's sort of this little magical, mythical village in Ohio just outside of Dayton. Mm -hmm. Um, My husband was stationed at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base at the time, and I was finishing my 
graduate degree at IU. So mm-hmm. I was actually commuting mm-hmm. from the Dayton area to Bloomington several times a week when I first got pregnant. We lived in Yellow Springs, and the first time I went there, I was like, this is my home. This is my people right here. It's a tiny little village of 4,000 people outside of Dayton. It's like this tiny progressive island in the middle of, you know, conservative Mm -hmm. Dayton area, Ohio. So I was really lucky that that's where I landed for that chapter Mm -hmm. of my life, for my pregnancy and for the birth of Bryn. And what was even more amazing was this was the time before Facebook. You know, there was very limited ability to connect with people online. There were still Yahoo groups and things like that. But Mothering Magazine, so that's Mm, my second mm -hmm. item, Mothering Magazine had an online community called Mm Mothering.commune. And it was this vast forum community where you could talk about anything related to pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding, you know, you name it. We had forums for that. And it was such a real community. I met women through those discussion boards that I'm still connected with and still close friends with Mm. today. So this was back when I was pregnant with Bryn in 2005. And Mothering Magazine itself, the actual printed magazine, was my source for wisdom. And the community that I was connected with online of these women were my tribe. They Mm. really were. Mm -hmm. And I'm so when I think about who I was able to be as a young mother, as a new mother. I wasn't really young. <laughs> as a new mother. <laughs> uh, it was in large part due to the wisdom of Mothering Magazine mm-hmm. and the community that I was able to tap into. When I look back, you know, not having a real map of motherhood, I'm so proud of how well I did, even though it was so hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. But in large part, that was because of what I knew from the mothering community. Yeah. Mothering is just such a such a predominant aspect of my identity. Not only mothering my children, but um, stepping into the mother archetype for the community here mm-hmm. of women and girls that I hold space for. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit more about your mother? Yeah. Are you okay with that? Sure. <laughs> you said that she was absent. Yeah, she um, chose to divorce my dad when I was real young. I was probably f- five, five-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, so the memories I have of my life when my mom was integrated in our family are snapshot memories. Mm-hmm. You know, they're pictures yeah. of like my mom in the kitchen. From when you were very young. When I was real young. Mm-hmm. And and then the, the time of her leaving our family was incredibly traumatic and she left my dad who's this real easygoing guy you know he's a great dad and so she moved I grew up in southern Oregon I was born in Ashland and grew up in a very small bubble (laughs) of people who you know parents knew me and my dad knew all of my friends we all knew each other Um, my mom left our Southern Oregon community and moved to Southern California. Mm. And I didn't see her for most of my childhood. Mm. When I think of my childhood, you know, I think of my life with my dad and my brother. Mm -hmm. You know, my dad was my dad and my mom, essentially. And at the time, the, you know, the real depth of that 
I couldn't even see how that would impact my life on a long, very, very long-term basis. It still affects my life, honestly. Um, So for me going through pregnancy and the birth of my daughter was almost in some ways like reliving the trauma of not having a mother as a child. Yeah. When you become a mother, you see your childhood through the eyes of a mother, not only through your own eyes as the child who experienced it, but now looking back, I can see my my childhood self, my young self, through my mother eyes that I have, yes. that I see you know, the world through now. As we were saying earlier, when you're a mother, anything that affects children affects you. Yeah. And so looking back on my life story as a mother... It's really hard sometimes. What did you learn from your mother about being a mother? Mostly what not to do, to be honest. Yeah. I I think I have learned to be the mother that I didn't have. Well, my third thing is the goddess archetype. So I brought my old falling apart oracle deck called the goddess oracle. So for those who aren't familiar, an oracle card set is a it's a it's a set of beautifully illustrated cards of a particular theme mm-hmm. and it is and, you know, some people believe or use it in a way to reflect wisdom on their life's journey. Mm-hmm. So there are dozens and millions of different types of oracle cards. And like I guess tarot cards are an example. Well, tarot maybe? cards can be used as an oracle. Mm-hmm. Um, they're cousins, I guess okay. you could say. So that's something that people are familiar with. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's very similar in concept to the tarot deck. Oracle decks are of their own particular theme, and they don't have the major arcana and the numbers and that mm-hmm. sort of thing and the suits. So, for example, the Goddess Oracle that I have by Amy Sophia Maraszynski is just a set of goddesses. Mm. Each card is its own goddess mm-hmm. with its own message, its own wisdom. And is it from all traditions? It is. It's mm. from many world cultures. Mm-hmm. So this is... Um, this is probably one of the better known goddess oracle decks, but there's even there are different ones that are focused on the goddess and pretty much anything you could be interested in, there's an oracle deck around mm-hmm. that concept. So going back to my early, early months even of mothering, one of my dear friends in Yellow Springs had a, a goddess oracle set. And this was completely new. I was familiar with tarot, but mm-hmm. I, I was really uh, unfamiliar with the goddess archetype in any real deep meaningful Mm -hmm. way other than what I'd heard from Greek mythology, etc. So she had this goddess oracle deck and one day I was at her house and we were just kind of fooling around with it Mm -hmm. and 
I could not believe the accuracy of the wisdom that I received from basically asking a question and then pulling three cards. Yeah. So it is very similar to tarot in that, in, and that's how you experience it as well. Mm-hmm. And I was so intrigued by the whole idea, by the oracle idea, by the goddess idea. So I got my own, and this is it. The one that I Yeah, I see that the box top is falling apart. It's falling apart. Yeah. It's incredibly well-loved and well-worn and has been a staple in my life since those years. So how do you use it? Uh, Well, there are many different ways to use it, Mm -hmm. but... um, But how do you use it? How do I use Mm -hmm. it? Yeah. Uh, it It shifted over time. It used to be something that I would pull a card every day and just reflect on the wisdom of that card and and ask okay how does this how does this pertain to my life right now but the way that i use it and the way that people often use it is if there's a big shift in their life or a mm-hmm. question that they have or if they're seeking wisdom about an issue in their lives they'll pull an oracle card or do a three card set so this has, at some points in my life, been on my nightstand, and I use it every day. There's also been phases in my life where it's been in a drawer or on a shelf, and I haven't touched it in months. Mm-hmm. But the reason that it's such an important part of my life is because it opened a door for me that I there's wisdom that I would never have been invited to access had I not had this portal. It's a door, wow. really, for yeah. me. And it changed my perception of myself, it really changed my perception of the world, of women, of culture. So the second item, the pair of this, is a book called mm-hmm. Goddesses and Every Woman, Powerful Archetypes in Women's Lives by Jean Shinoda Bolin. My heart just flutters even when I <laughs> <laughs> say her name. She is my heroine. She's my shiro. If I could choose a mentor, a grandmother in my life, it would be Jean Shinoda Bolin. And so as I became more immersed in the idea of the goddess archetype, I read this book by Jean Shinoda Bolin. And it really, it opened something in me that allowed me to make sense of my life in a way that I never had been able to before. Um, And the understanding of archetypes in general has become the framework really of my work in the world of my way the way that I understand myself the way that I work with women the way Mm. that I work with girls so these two items together are essentially the bedrock of the way that I interact with the world but what I found was the longer that I worked with my goddess oracle deck the same goddesses came up over and over and over that's interesting it is so what were they Artemis. Mm-hmm. Um, she is all about selfhood and authenticity. She also was a motherless daughter raised by her father, Zeus. And her story is that she said when she was three years old, he said, what do you want for your birthday? And she said, I want to be myself. I want to wear a tunic and go hunting. I don't want you to marry me off to anybody. I want my own identity and I want to do what I want. And he was like, all right. <laughs> so... Obviously, there are some connections there for me. Um, She was the one who showed up over and over and over. Mm -hmm. 
And so this is why I have an arrow tattooed. I was just about to ask. I'm putting it together. You have a beautiful tattoo of an arrow on on your inner forearm there. Yeah, and this is really, I mean, this could have been one of my five Uh things for sure. This is absolutely symbolic of Artemis and of my journey to really seeing and accepting myself in my wholeness. And, you know, there are a lot of things that our culture wants to prune off of us Mm -hmm. women so my journey with the Artemis archetype was all about reintegrating in my wholeness and not being afraid Mm. to be my whole self Artemis's journey really resonates with me as a motherless daughter and she's also kind of she's a go-getter you know she knows what she wants Mm -hmm. and she's not afraid to pursue that. And so the the symbol of the arrow is, you know, her focusing on her goals, setting her intentions. And releasing the arrow is energetically releasing your your intentions towards your goal. So it's heavily symbolic for me. We'll be right back. I'm Sean Cannon, host of The Guest List, where every week you'll get casual, in-depth conversations and guest DJ sets with musicians, authors, actors, comedians, and other notable weirdos for that matter. You know, it's kind of like making a new friend at the end of the bar and then finding out they were in your favorite band. That's every week here on The Guest List. Steer into it. From celebrities on the red carpet. When I speak about the Android, I use it as a parallel. To everyday people who are making a difference in our own community. I just noticed there were hardly any women. And I'm like, this doesn't make sense. She said, Mommy, every time I see a homeless person, I just want to raise money and buy them a house. Strange Fruit brings you their voices and their stories. Race, gender, and LGBT issues from politics to pop culture. A new episode every Saturday on strangefruitpod.org. So my fourth item is my book that I have compiled. It's called Wild and Wise, Sacred Feminine Meditations for Women's Circles and Personal Awakening. This is the lamp that I'm holding for the world. Mm -hmm. This is a compilation of over three years of the guided meditations that I've written for my work that I do with women Mm -hmm. and girls. Mm -hmm. So in it are all of the messages, all of the things that I wanted to say to the women that gather with me in circle and community. So I'd had all of these on my computer, you know, for years. And over and over, women were asking me, can I can I get that meditation? Can you write that down for Mm -hmm. me? Can I can you email that to me? I need to continue to do work with that. And so I would, you know, and eventually um, some really special women in our Red Tent community and my best friend Malia, who 
also leads women's circles and mother-daughter circles in her community in Athens, Georgia, said, you need to write a book. Mm. And I was like, eh, that's not really my path. No? I don't think so. Uh-huh. Um, but the longer I sat with it, the more I realized this is medicine. And it's not doing anyone any good sitting on my computer. Mm. So why not put it out there so that women all over the world who are sitting in circle or women who are sitting in a circle of one on their bed and <laughs> sipping their tea on mm-hmm. Sunday morning can access this beautiful portal that can really shift and transform a life's journey. So the book is what I wish someone had told me mm. in my journey as a girl and young woman. And my my hope is that it will find its way into the hands of the women who need it, the way that my goddess oracle deck did when I needed it, the way that Mothering Magazine did when I needed it, the way that Jean Shinoda Bolin's goddess archetype book did when I needed it. I really am sending it out into the world with such a prayer, such an intention that the medicine reaches the women who most need it right now. What has it been like for you to take your seat as a teacher? Uh, It's been very natural for me. Mm -hmm. As a child, I knew that I was going to be a teacher. I'm air quoting teacher. Like a school teacher, maybe. (laughs) And that's Mm -hmm. what I thought. Mm -hmm. I had really, really loving, beautiful relationships with my early elementary school Mm -hmm. teachers, Mm -hmm. most of whom were women. Mm -hmm. And so they did step in in some ways and fill that role for me Mm -hmm. um, when I needed just a mother presence Mm -hmm. in my life. And so I knew from a very early age that being a teacher was my path. Mm. And so it is absolutely my medicine to to be in this role. Um, what What was challenging was putting myself out in the community as a leader. Mm-hmm. because leaders can often be maligned for stepping into the leadership role. Mm. So it it takes a lot of personal knowledge to be able to stand in front of a community and mm-hmm. say, this is what I'm going to tell you. Here's yeah. what I have to say. Yeah. But I've always been... I've always been a communicator, mm-hmm. and I've always had a lot to say. And before before Facebook and before my book and before my community, um, you know, when blogs were the thing, mm-hmm. I was blogging. And that's when I really realized, oh, not only do I have something to say, I'm, I'm pretty opinionated. <laughs> so <laughs> anyone who knows me knows that. I'm never shy of sharing my opinions. Yeah. But through writing, I really found I can express something that, needs to be said. Mm -hmm. My journey of being in a role of leadership has been a journey of me refining my approach to the world, Mm. the way I interact with the world. Okay, tell me more about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've had to call in and integrate a lot of grace. Do you remember when Dances with Wolves came out in movie theaters Mm -hmm. when we were like teenagers. Yeah, yeah. I remember my brother and my dad and I were talking about the movie and the main female character, her name was Stands with a Fist. Uh Uh-huh. And she was such a powerful, awesome female character. And my brother said, if you had a tribal name, it would be Little Big Mouth. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) 
And he was right. Yeah. Um, and that is that's a quality that maybe doesn't always bring people together. No, <laughs> no, it doesn't. Yeah. So for me, I have evolved, and I'm thankful for my evolution mm-hmm. into you know having a, a like I was saying, not always being black and white, but really sitting in the gray uh-huh. and feeling comfortable with that, and also. Knowing as I've lived my own life, reflecting back on that, that it's real easy for someone to tell you what you should do. It's real easy. It is another thing to have someone tell you, you know what you need to do. The fifth thing, um, it's a line from a song, mm. and the song is by Nako and Medicine for the People, and the song is called Manifesto 2. It's a long song, but at the very end of it, it's almost like a chant. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, don't waste your hate, rather gather and create, be of service, be a sensible person, use your words and don't be nervous. You can do this. You've got purpose. Find your medicine and use it. I've got chills on my whole body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, for me, this isn't just a song. It's, it is a life philosophy. Mm. And so it touches every aspect of my life, my journey as an individual person, my role as a mother, my message as a community space holder. I really believe that the answer to... So much of the pain and despair (laughs) that we experience in our culture is not really being connected to our own medicine and being invited to use it. And the term medicine really means our gift, what we're here to share with the world. Mm. So when I think about, I get really easily overwhelmed with what's happening in the world right now Mm -hmm. and have a very strong mother bear reaction, which is also an aspect of the Artemis mm-hmm. archetype. Um, and, and it can leave me feeling paralyzed mm. because there's so much to do. There's so much that needs doing. And mother bear, you mean you want to fix and protect. Right, that- right. Like mm-hmm. step in, protect, mm-hmm. um, and give voice to those who, who are voiceless mm-hmm. right now. Um, But there's too much in the world (laughs) for one person to do. Mm. So I've had to really find a center in myself where I reflect on what I personally can do Mm -hmm. and know that my efforts are a drop in the bucket, but yours are a drop in the bucket too. And so everyone sharing their drop in the bucket doesn't just turn into a bucket, it turns into a wave. Mm -hmm. And that that is such a huge belief, metaphorical inspiration for me that we all can't do everything that needs doing, but each one of us can do a thing. Right. And so the work that I do in training women to lead circles is inviting them to find their medicine. And and I do this in multiple ways throughout my circle work. So I have to be really mindful of, okay, here's, I'm worrying about this, I'm thinking about this, i got to draw it back in, bring it back into my center, 
And for me, that means reflecting on, okay, how am I sharing my medicine right now? These are the things I'm doing. And then I can feel a little bit of peace Mm. about that. And Mm -hmm. that's part of the reason that birthing my book into the world felt like a part of a really authentic part of my path was, okay, this is a way that this is a drop in the bucket. This is a way I can contribute. Um, This is part of my sphere of influence Mm -hmm. is inviting others to share the medicine that up to this point has only been part of our very small red tent community. Mm-hmm. But back to Nako's song, um, I think it's really so important for each person to realize that they not only have medicine to share, but that they can access their inner power and give themselves permission to follow that path, mm-hmm. to believe that they have something worth sharing. And that collectively is what is going to shift yeah. us. So his words in the song bring me back to that core of, I have a reaction to what's happening. How am I going to harness my energy for positive change? Mm -hmm. So I've got one last question for you. Okay. Uh, In the course of putting all these items together, was there anything that you learned about yourself or that, that you discovered? I think I discovered that... It takes more than five things <laughs> to, to tell a story yeah. about a person's life. But f- five things is a great entry point. And I think it didn't reveal anything necessarily new to mm-hmm. me about myself, but maybe just solidified where my life really changed. The fork in the road for me was motherhood. So that that was actually really a beautiful thing to reflect upon because I think that, you know, we all tell our sto- ourselves stories about ourselves and about our lives. And a big, probably the biggest story that I continued to put have on loop in mm-hmm. my mind was my childhood, the Mm -hmm. ramifications of growing up with a mother who had emotionally abandoned us. Mm -hmm. But this exercise really shifted my lens and made me realize that my life story is about motherhood. It is. My whole story is motherhood. But probably had I had a different childhood, I would not be who I am now. And I'm happy with that. That's powerful. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you. It's been really fantastic. It's been a pleasure for me, too. Thanks again to Amy Bamel Wilding for being my guest this week. Today's show was produced, edited, and mixed by me. Editing help from our executive producer, Stephen George. We had music today from Poddington Bear, Jazzar, and Forget the Whale. And our theme music is by Alex Wright. You can get more information on our show at WFPL.org and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.
Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org. Thank you.